Optimal Bio podcast. At Optimal Bio, we don't just balance your hormones, we balance your whole body. Our conversations range from nutrition to medicine with an emphasis on wellness tips to support your health journey. If you like what you hear, find us on the web at optimalbio.com and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Optimal Bio, a podcast about health, wellness, and overall business. Today, we thought we'd do a deeper dive on BHRT pellets and how they're manufactured and who manufacture them. And today, we have a special guest, Sean Riney, CEO of Qualgen. Sean, welcome. Hey, thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. I'm glad you guys uh, invited me to come talk. No, it's a pleasure, and thank you for uh, you know providing some time for us today. Um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bit about, about your background and an, an intro to the audience. Yeah, um, so I am a Oklahoma native, just right off the bat, and uh, I've got two boys that are uh, they're good boys. We'll put it that way. They're like any other children, but they're great. And uh, I've been in business uh, since the day I got out of college as an entrepreneur, which is you know a little rare. I've only I worked in the banking system for a little bit and had a manufacturing company I owned, and I uh, helped uh, grow that up to sell it. And then I was in the financial area of doing uh, web and internet billing, banking, and bill pay stuff for about 12 years. And then I grew that business up enough that uh, somebody wanted to buy it and sold it. And then I uh, got out of that business and got into this area of healthcare by uh, by working with different doctors that were in a hospital area wanting to get out and do other more specific things on their own and ran into HRT with a bunch of doctors and they had a glorious idea for me to make pellets, which was kind of crazy because I'm a web guy. But uh, next thing you know, about took about two or three years we're working on all that. And the next thing we know, we're, we're in the uh, 503B space uh, making um, um, testosterone and estradiol pellets for bioidentical hormone therapy. That's a pretty good, great story. And um, let's go back, though. Let's go back to, you know, your childhood. And, you know, I, like you, I've started and owned my own company and sold it. And it, was there a moment in time, you know, when you're 12, 13 years old that, you know, you're doing yard work for a neighbor or you're shoveling snow, maybe not in Oklahoma, but you're doing stuff and you realize, hey, man, I really want to be an entrepreneur someday. I mean, can you kind of walk us back through your childhood a little bit? Well, yeah, I remember I grew up in the 70s, so I thought I was going to be Burt Reynolds and drive a Trans Am across the U.S. and chase girls. And uh, that was a favorite movie of mine. <laughs> Only some people know what that is. And as crazy as it is, he was... Smoking the yeah, bandit, right? Crazy as it is, he was my hero at the time, you know? And uh, no, for some reason, uh, my mom, I think, literally by subling sublingually dropping into my head, I needed to be an attorney, I think. And somehow I wound up with that in college. And then I ended up in law school for a little bit, only to be have about a D average on a well level in there. And I knew that was not for me. And uh, I liked business and I had started the company I first sold and is the manufacturing thing. And I knew right there, I love to build stuff. That's what I like the most. I like to build things and I love to watch the face of employees or other people that get excited and they enjoy what they're doing. And I get, that's the most joy to me is watching other people have success 
within my success. That, that's awesome. That, that, that's what I like the most. So where'd you go to college? I went to college at uh, the University of Oklahoma here in o- at Boomer Sooner. And then I also went to uh, Oklahoma City University. Okay. And then why, did you start this the manufacturing business up when you were still in school? I started that a little bit. Like I said, I was trying to go to law school. I was I was doing way too much. I was doing about four things at once. And uh, I even had, by the way, that law school degree had a weird deal. They, um, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a true believer in Christ and, uh, I'm a mega follower and he's, he's my everything. And I'll tell you, I've been since college. And so I wanted to get a, a, a master's in divinity as well with my law degree, which was like insanity. And so I wonder I had a D in law, right? And uh, so I, I kind of stuck to it for a while and I dropped out of that because I decided, you know, I'm not going to be a pastor. And that is a tough life. And I figured out that that wasn't for me either. Although I love the the history of Christianity and everything goes along with it. It's just one of my favorite subjects. And uh, uh, it's fun to study and be with friends around that like to study that too. But I, I went back to building stuff. So that's kind of how that went. So as a, a believer as well, um, you know, we tend to hopefully a lot of us, you know, pray and, and contemplate and think about what God is telling us. And when you're, it sounds to me like you, you're like to have a lot of things on your plate at all times. And, you know, as you're going through contemplating divinity school and what have you, um, was there something that happened in your life or was it just something that, you know, came in your head that, that decided, made that decision for you not to do that at this point? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, I was working within the Presbyterian church at that time. And, uh, I was on the side working with a youth group and I remember uh, my, my mind goes back now. I'm, I'm pretty old now, Jim. So I was very young back then. So we had to go back and my mind goes back. I do remember this pretty vividly after about a, two or three weekends of doing, you go through a baptism to a, a high school, a graduation to a birthday party to a four-year-old death or a high school kid that got killed in a car wreck. And my emotions were all over the planet. And there was even worse things involved with that with some of the children. And I realized then that I would be a much better person outside uh, than inside trying to help. And I just was not made up to do that. It was a really, that's a tough job. And I have so much respect for the people that do that because day in and day out, the things they know and go through are extremely difficult yeah, I've heard from other pastors too, and it's um, it is difficult, and you got to be a special person to be able to do it. Um, so you get this manufacturing business, and I'm assuming that you know you just had on the job training in terms of you know being a leader and managing and you know buying raw materials and you know getting a product out the door and everything else. So you know, kind of walk us through how you learn on the job and you know some of your speed bumps that you hit that you had to overcome. So within Qualgen, it a little bit of natural to me because in the manufacturing I did, I actually made engines for uh, Ford and other OEMs back then, original equipment manufacturers. And so uh, the ISO standards were high already, much like GMP within the uh, 503B ranks that we have to follow for FDA, which is a standard. Um, very used to that, very high standards for that because uh, – Ford and the other manufacturers wouldn't uh, pass your stuff if you didn't have all the ISO standards in place and documented. And then, of course, in the banking business, extremely regulated, as we very well know. 
Um, I'm in fact in Oklahoma where the deregulation started right here with Penn Square Bank back in the early 80s. So we, uh, I knew all about that and had to deal with a lot of the bank regulations and those types of things. And of course, you get into the drug world, it's even, it, it's probably as much, if not more, it's, it's a different regulation. The banks and all tend to be more, uh, they, they work with you and it's, it's, it's more of a different relationship than in the drug world. It seems to be more punitive and it's, it's a little tougher. It's a lot more difficult relationship. So, um, so I've had the regulation of that has been pretty good. And so understanding processes and all that really helped. I also, when I was in college, I got lucky. I got to work on a Fulbright scholarship with a guy by the name of Dr. Robert Hamm. And I worked on a, a deal with a company in Arkansas called Baldor Corporation to make electric motors. Uh, it took me about two years of research. We were trying to put a help them do the analysis to put a plant in uh, Czechoslovakia when the Berlin Wall fell down in 91 and all that. And the East countries all open everything. And, hey, we're going to make a lot of money. And so I had to do a lot of dimming, uh, Edward Dimming research. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a, he's a, yeah. So, you know, and of course the United States put him in China because they thought he was a, or in Japan right after the war. And because they all thought he was a quack. And uh, he ends up not being a quack. And his mathematical statistical process controls end up being a, a big deal, of course. And then we all know what Toyota and those guys did after the years with that. So I studied him because uh, Dr. Ham thought it was important to understand a lot of the statistical process controls for what we were going to be doing in uh, in Czechoslovakia. And so I actually ended up doing enough on that. We could have created a manual. I'll never forget. We ended up doing seminars on it. <laughs> and Dr. Ham would talk to it. We did such a good job. And he ended up making money on that, which was great. And we traveled around doing that. But uh, And by the way, the plant never got built in Czechoslovakia. Because in the final meetings, we decided, and it was another group that was doing an analysis outside of us that was actually out of Chicago, decided that um, the socialism there in the country, they, the, the, the worker did not understand the true nature of quality. And they're like, and to us in the United States, you shake your head, you don't understand that. But, you know, they, they got a paycheck, whether it was a good piece of product or bad, it didn't matter. And and of course, the guys, the guy's name was Dr. Qual, who was in charge of this at Baldor at the time. He said, look, you know, quality is everything, especially for our engines, what we're going to be building. And if we're not going to be able to reassure that 100% and all the workers are going to have this type of mindset, there's no reason to work on it. So they pulled out, which is an interesting story. Just, you know, to think about what's going on in today's world, if you think about that, those, those types of thinking have lots of ramifications. You know, the circle comes full round. So quality is a huge deal to me. I understand that from a high level and everything we've always done. Um, we tend to take the higher road. It is always more expensive. And, but, and that's why our, our products are not the least expensive. They're, they're more money. And uh, the reason is because of the quality that's in them. We don't do anything that is cheap or any shortcuts. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, I had spent 25 years in the clinical trial business. They call my company a CRO. And, um, you know, we work with small and midsize uh, biotech and pharmaceutical, mostly doing oncology trials in phase one and phase two. So, you know, we understand the regulation like you do. And um, obviously, we always have to be prepared for an audit and what have you. Um, the At the time, though, you know, we had also opened up a, a location in India, you know, to be able to outsource some of our work to. 
And we thought it'd be pretty easy just because it's, it's lower labor or they're very educated over there. And we thought we could just set up a shop and not have to really worry about, you know, managing it. We could just send work over and, and it would come back in perfect order. And we found out in very short time that we actually had to provide more management oversight just simply because of the culture there in terms of delivering work was different than the U.S. And did you also find that same problem when you were trying to do something in Czechoslovakia as well? Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, a story more close to home. I own another company called Renewal Pharma that we have uh, facilities in other countries, one in Brazil particularly. And the culture, is that a little bit what you're talking about and is how people think and what they do is totally different in how you do business. And in fact, not only that, how you do business, but how you conduct business and how they do processes. Um, we went down there and we had all kinds of trouble right off the bat because they thought we were crazy <laughs> on how we were doing things here. And, you know, you're looking at, no, you're crazy, you know, type thing. But, you know, it's just, it's not that at all. It's just a difference of of thinking and how they're raised and what they go through, I think. That's uh, that, that's my answer. And I'd never encountered that at that level. So like what you're talking about. And you don't, and you don't have that in your business plan, you know. Oh, yeah, cultural differences. You know, what is that, you know? That, that wasn't that wasn't in the forecast, <laughs> right? I traveled over there and we took the whole team out to dinner one night. And one of the people I was with, he was a U.S. citizen, but, you know, he had been raised in India. He had come over either here to go to school and he stayed and uh, to work and what have you. And he goes, here's the biggest difference. He goes, in the U.S., if, if somebody says yes to you, then you trust that they're going to actually get the job done. Whereas in India and at this point in time, you know, if it's an open-ended question and the answer is yes, it means that, yes, I acknowledge what you're saying, but there's no confirmation that they can actually get the job done. And that's not a criticism on India. It's just, it's wow. a, more of a criticism on, I think, me and my company at that point in time in reference to being able to communicate, you know, the right way to make sure that everybody understood what needed to be done. Yes. I think the foreign countries help us. I, I agree with that 100%. It, it changed how you look at communication. It really does. And, and that's a big factor, of course. I agree, 100%. So with your operation in Oklahoma, are you 100% U.S.-based? Yes, everything here is U.S.-based. Um, we operate uh, two facilities here, um, getting ready to be three. And uh, they're all within about, I wish they were all right next to each other, but we're spread out over about uh, about a mile and a half of different three different buildings. Um we have a current facility we operate in uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, that uh, is our main operation facility. We we founded that in 2015, I'm going to say, and we bought a new building, brand new, about two years ago, and been working on opening that facility. And we are like 60 days away, basically, from finishing that facility, and it is. It, it's one of those deals. You you build your first one and you learn, and this this next one is ten times better and and more. And of course, it's newer and it's ten years newer with ten year better technology and all that kind of stuff. So I'm real excited about it, and it also gives us more expansion, as well as we've now expanded into uh, we do our own labs. We have our own full up R and D um, testing as well as uh, laboratory testing for release items. We have tons of equipment we never even thought we would be doing when we started this. So we're big in the R&D world now, which, you know, in the compounding world with pharmacists in the past, 
Um, I've, I've worked with some old school pharmacists and they're just kind of funny guys because they'll just kind of go in the back with a couple things and put them on a mortar pestle and kind of grind around for a minute and go, oh, that looks good. Next thing you know, they got a drug. And, I, it, 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 you know, it, it's true because that's how compounding was from the 1930s up. That's the way it was. And, of course, in today's day and age, then this NECC thing that happened a while back, it's all changed, and and especially on sterile drugs. And, and it's it's understood because, you know, it, it's a endangerment to, to society, and, and there's got to be the right amount of um, – uh, rules in place, regulations to make sure that the products are safe, which is the number one thing. And then, of course, the next thing is that the drugs actually do what you know you, you're professing that you're going to do, and they're what they are. And so, with that comes you know tons of more um, not only processes but technology and people and knowledge and that kind of thing. Which you know, in the old pharma- pharmacy compounder in 1955, that was not on the laundry list. You know. They were more upset when the when the soda fountain broke, and you know everybody was upset about that. Right. I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm just saying it's just totally different today. And any pharmacist today that can tell you that, but it was back then. Today is not anywhere near it. And then you know, we're really a 503B, which is really much closer to. Uh, even though we do compounds, we're more like a manufacturer because what we put together is the same code that the a manufacturer uses. We're no different than what. Pfizer or somebody else has to do for the most part. So we're doing compounds, but they're the the integrity, I guess, with the word of the product is you know off the chart. And then all the 503Bs in the United States are under that same gun. It's very difficult because it's very expensive, as you might imagine. Sure. So let's educate our audience a little bit um, from a very simple explanation. What is the difference between a pharmaceutical and a compound? Well, one is, you know, a when you think of drugs, I think most people out there think of, uh, you know, Pfizer. You know, here we are in the vaccine age, right? Right. Um, those are drugs that have been made by big pharma, as they call them in this world, that are been uh, through clinical trial. And that's how they um, make sure they're safe for efficacy, their efficacy of them. And by the way, this is all a major argument right now. So I'm going to get in a real touchy space here with different people. But I'm going to go for it. Okay. I'm going to be as polite as I can. But, uh, the so you know those drugs are what they are and we all watch the commercials at the end of the drug and i'll end up telling you that you know it could create anything from diarrhea nausea or death and you're like oh wow why don't want to take that drug but that's because it came out of the clinical trials and they have to you know the transparency act and all the things that have gone on they have to disclose that to you that yeah you know some people have died taking this medicine which this is all in our litigious state that we're in to make sure that you know Somebody told you that that's possible in case it happens. They don't want the liability mm-hmm. in the compounding world. So that that's the big thing right there. Big change, big difference in the compounding world. We don't go through clinical trials like that. That can take three to seven years or whatever, if you will. Um, whereas you would on a, on a drug like that. And the, the safety then comes down to what I was talking about with what we work with called GMPs, good manufacturing practices that, we do tons of testing, basically, to verify and ensure that the drug has been tested for safety and, and what the drug is so that, you know, we don't release anything that's bad. And, and that's, it's, it's, it's pretty big. Whereas in the old compounding world, um, they didn't do that. And, and in, in our world, we do. So we basically test for everything that that big pharma guy is going to test for. But 
we don't have the clinical trial, but like in the pellet world, you know, they've been around for good grief, really hundreds of years since the thirties. The number one thing you guys have been doing, been around since then. And the safety and efficacy of that product is sound. It's been around a long time. It, real simple. We live in a capitalist world. If it didn't work, nobody would do it. They, they would have given up on a long time ago. And the safety of it at this point, we used to autoclave pellets back in the compounding days. I remember that. Everybody thought that was a way to sterilize. And it's not a method. It doesn't really work. And so we found out we irradiate everything now. It's, and it's not uh, gamma. It's uh, E-beam irradiation. So it's not what you would think a nuclear type of situation. It's done with electrical beams. And that's what kills all the nasties that would hurt you or such. And we have – we did almost – Four years of studies on that, just in case you want to know how long that took. And, um, geez, I mean, the, the reports themselves are thousands of pages to show the sterility assurance of that product so that it's safe. And that's FDA reviewed and regulated and all that, too. So that's a big, it's still very safe, but not the same as that clinical trial. The clinical trial is going to tell you more about, to me, of, of what it's going to do per patient or what they would think it would do in a patient population. And to me, in the pellet world, that data has been recognized over hundreds of years of doctors been doing this for a long time. And then like an optimal bio, your, your people there, you know, I've been doing this a long time. They can pretty much tell you after years of doing it, a lot of results are what they're going to get because they've got the experience. So there's the differences, I would think. And is our, as a compounder, are you using approved ingredients by the FDA Whereas the pharmaceutical, it's a molecule, it's something new, and it's never been in market before. Is that is there a difference there too, or is that yeah. not the case? Well, now as a compounder, I'm using a drug that has already been clinic that has already been uh, approved somewhere down the line. Um, whereas big pharma, they are like you said, they're creating a whole new molecule. You know, it's something you've never seen before. It's a new drug, that kind of thing. Just like uh, we'll pick on Viagra for a minute. You know, it was a big deal when it first came out and what all it would do and, and nothing like it, you know, there was nothing in the market for it. And then all of a sudden, then like today you can compound with it. So Denafil is now, you know, come off, off list as they say, and is now a compoundable product. And um, so we can buy that product now in bulk, as they would call it in the comp in our, in our world, 503B, and we can compound with it. Whereas um, like Pfizer, who made that drug way back in the day, I'm trying to just pick on the American companies here, Jim. Um, you know, when they made that back in the day, that was a, that was a brand new thing. You know, nobody, it was a big thing and, and a new molecule, like you said, and a new drug. So we can only compound with drugs that have already been made or with products like testosterone that has already been made and agreed with the FDA. We can't make anything anew, so to speak. Right. We're not allowed to do that. Right. Yes, you're not in the novel therapeutics. The no. um, so you talked before about 503b2. Um, that's a, obviously a different segment within the FDA where you can do a what just a simple safety trial compared to a full blown oh. safety and efficacy trial in the pharmaceutical time. 505b2. Yeah. 505b2. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's an interesting topic. Um, so that comes out of 1984, somebody in Waxman Act that was made. And they did that because if I go back to my history, remember I'm a history guy, so I like to know these types of things, like why did they do this? 
you know, the clinical trials, of course, take a long time. And, and that's been part of the problem with the FDA. I think we all know that today, that the number one thing was, you know, Moderna and these guys had these vaccines out there and they hadn't, they hadn't been approved yet. And President Trump said, no, 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 you know, we're going to do this fast track thing. I think that's what they called that. And we're going to get these out. Warp in the speed. What's that? Warp speed. Warp speed. That's it. And we're going to get these out in the market and get people saved, which was smart. And because I think that the, the bureaucracy within the FDA, you have to remember back in the 60s, 70s, had 500 people or whatever, 1,000. There's now over 17,000 people in that organization. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, so, you know, when you get any organization that big, you're going to get lack of communication. You're going to have some breakdowns. You're going to have, you're going to have, it's going to get difficult. And, and that's understood, but it's too bad is what it is. So what happened there is I think in 1984, it's kind of funny the date of that, right? Cause then you have the book 1984. So you, you go to the, in 1984, when the Waxman act, I called it that, cause I know it's one of the guys who was in it did this was to provide some drugs that you could get them to the market quicker. And it's kind of like an abbreviated NDA, so to speak, that's not totally the case, but you could do that with certain drugs so that it wouldn't take, you know, three to seven years to see a new drug get on the shelf. And to me, the advancement with technology is killing this too, because, you know, wow, uh, you and I are young enough men that, you know, we've seen a guy go to the moon and all that. And some kids don't really understand what that means, but before that guy landed on the moon, you would have, if you would have told us that we would have went, yeah, right. Sure. Whatever. And in this day and age, you know, they're flying up space and back. And anyway, technology just keeps going at this speed that's insane. I think Trump, you said it, Trump said at warp speed. He's right about that. And so drugs and technology, drugs are a form of technology, and they're moving at that same pace. So if you've got to wait on something that started to be R&D today and seven years from now, it's archaic seven years from now because there's something else. So we've got to have a better process to make drugs better and faster. And I, that's a problem, and it's going to be a problem until Congress and some other people decide to make some changes there. There's no doubt about it. And the 505B2 is a way to do that. That is a possible. That's there's 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 things there, and it gets very. You got to know all the rules, so to speak. It's complicated to say it that way. So, how do you feel about the following? There's a theory out there because of the change in the FDA over years. Um, to your point, when we, when we were both younger, and especially in my early days within my company, I mean, it took a long time for a drug to get approved. And I remember, you know, trying to figure out ways where through compassionate studies, you know, you can get people on on the drug, um, you know, that were, let's say, stage four uh, with certain cancers. And the FDA at times would refuse, you know, to allow these people on. And it seems like today the argument is um, because it's gotten so big and it's been infiltrated um, more by mostly by the pharmaceutical firms that we're now approving things that we almost too fast. You know, we're not really looking at the data. And since you're in the mix, so to speak, um, is that a is that a myth or is that true? Wow, that's an interesting question. Well. I know in my world, what we do, um, it's all about the science. And you hear this, follow the science. And and they're not doing it a lot of times, kind of like what you're saying. And, I, you know, I think it just goes in and out, Jim. I think it depends on the on the topic. 
and the product and the space that you're in. And then, of course, I hate to say it, but I think we're all adults here and know that politics do exist. <laughs> whether whether you like it or not, it's a reality of life and they're not, it's not going away. And so you have to learn how to manage those things together and communicate. And that seems to be the big trouble. It's like the it's like the four kids on the playground in sixth grade that not one of them want to agree which was the prettiest girl. So they get in a fight about it. You know, it, it, it's dumb, but it's junior high. Right. But that's kind of what goes on. And 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 I just sit back in my own seat and just kind of, you know, you're, you're just like, wow, this this could be a lot better than it is. It's just a matter of communicating and working together better as opposed to somebody trying to tell you what's better or what's not better because it's their opinion. And so like what you said, you go back to the science. Science is science. Science doesn't lie. It, they can't. And and it just is what it is. And so what you get a lot of this is, is uh, some people have a theory of there needs to be more testing or more trials or more this or more that. You know, I don't know. Here, the bad news is I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist or any kind of a medical person. I'm a business guy that just uses common logic is about all I've got. And, and I'm, and I'm at a, I'm, the good news is I have a high advantage because I'm from Oklahoma, of course. So, you know, the IQ is higher than some. And, of course. And our, right, of course. And our farm logic that we use down here in, in this part of the world is, is pretty simple. You know, we don't try to get it too, complicated for a lot of reasons. And, and I'm not making fun of that. Uh, I am a little bit, but from a standpoint, I think some people do get this so complicated that you can't get anywhere. And and that becomes a problem. You know, we get so infested with, we got to have all these things and this data. And the reality is, no, you really don't, you know, in some instances. And so I think it gets out of hand. I guess that's my See, that's a very political good answer, Jim. I, I went roundabout <laughs> on your question. I'll be around it to give you my belief yeah. in that. The good news is you answered it. The bad news is we're not sure exactly how you answered it. Um, <laughs> but so I will say this. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the explosion of of compounding. You know, again, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you very rarely heard about it. And it seems like today it's especially on the storefront, you know, it's, it's, it's taken off. And obviously from a manufacturing standpoint, I'll let you speak to that. Uh, but it seems like there's more manufacturers doing it now as well. So how did that happen? Was it all back again to 1984 and, and the, and the act that was passed or is it something else that happened? I, th I think, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit here. Number one, the creation of the 503 B's in 2015, you know, that added to that because it didn't exist before then. You just had your good old, pharmacy guys making compounds they've been doing it forever and by the way those guys did a great job i mean hats off and, and applauding them there's nothing wrong with what they've ever done and still doing and and i think that that's an art form a little bit as well as what it is as far as science and man if we ever stick a fork in that shame on us because that's one of the pillars of medicine in my opinion and i think it's become the more for light more light because if you think about it, let's go back to 1955. You didn't have a lot of um, on-the-shelf brand drugs. Everything was compounded. Mm -hmm. Everything. So the it kind of went away there with you know law and all these guys creating all these big pharma companies, creating all these drugs and patents and such. And now we have I don't know how many drugs there are now. I mean, there's a lot. There's a bunch. 
and uh, the purple list, orange list, they call them, of lists of drugs that are out there that are branded and in, 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 the, in the system. And so you come back to the compounders, and that's the drugs they use to compound because they take those off the shelf and mix up whatever. And I go back to, I always pick on one that I had as a kid that I'd always get sick and you'd go in and the first thing they'd give me was a compound of uh, cough syrup with codeine, you know, to help your throat. I mean, you know right. what I'm saying? And stuff was nasty, but it worked. I mean, it worked. It did the job and, and the pharmacy guy knew my mom and hey, here, here it is. Hope you get better son. And, and they give you the medicine to make you better. And that was true. And so, I think what's happened is the compounding world has figured out also to make more custom compounds that are more boutique type drugs that you can do with all this stuff that's out there today that you know those guys didn't have in 1955 and 65 didn't exist. Now you've got this laundry list of things of different things you could do and the different things that they can provide to the public. And those custom compounds are critical, in my opinion, to especially as a weapon. And I think it's one of the truest weapons for providers to use in their medical practice. And I'm on my soapbox here a little bit because this is real important to me that providers are always allowed the ability to practice. That's a big word, practice medicine. And one of their biggest things they can use is drugs, you know, mm-hmm. and and the different things and chemicals to make us get better. And, and, my, and I'm going to lay up on this one because in a great... And uh, uh, for instance, here is uh, COVID with a drug called dexamethasone. Um, It's a steroid for your chest and such. And doctors early on when COVID hit out, you know, struck out online, you know, they have their, their, I forget what it's called, but they have their online. They can can basically see what other doctors are doing with drugs and trying to treat. They found out early on that dexamethasone could treat this really quick and, and make a big difference. Well, dexamethasone has been around a long time, and it definitely did not go to clinical trial for COVID-19. It didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But it works, and it's saved a ton of lives. And it's known. It's factual. And there we go. If doctors weren't – and a lot of them have used a compound of that because they want a higher dose than what's normally prescribed. So, But if doctors weren't allowed to use that drug off-label, if you will, because it wasn't meant for COVID, of course – and able to do the compounding of it was how many people would we have tragically lost if it wasn't available? So this is where this is compounding and what compounding can do are those things like that right there. And especially when it comes to crisis. And so, and not to mention in the hormone world, there's all kinds of other hormone therapies that other doctors through practice have thought of other ways to do things. I know I've talked to some guys in your organization that they have, they have an idea by the second, you know, of different things we can do, fantastic things with patients. But uh, anyway, if you didn't have that art out there available, it would be really a tragedy. Very important. No, I agree. So let's go back to your company, Qualgen. Um, you have a second plant coming online soon. T- tell us how, how big are you? How many employees do you have? What else do you manufacture besides BHRT? Yeah, so we started out with a just to give you a little history. We started out with a whopping three people making pellets, um, and uh, I never forget it. With like 10, 10, 10 customers, fifteen, twenty, can grow up, and I got some great people out there that have always uh, backed us. And God bless them for everything they've done for us. Had a lot of help along the way. Met a lot of great people, Jim. Um, 
And then uh, we grew that up to, we're now 40, we're 45, 47, somewhere in that range. We're almost 50 people, which that's going to be interesting because that changes things in the business side once you get to 50 employees. Yes, but, it uh, does. We, we rely very heavily on technology is one reason why we don't get that done. Most everything we do is very automated, which is very unusual in the compounding world. It's usually things are very manual. Um, most everything we have is pretty much an automated system. Try to take the humans out of the element and not have their bio burden affect what we're making as much as possible. And we continue to thrive on that. We've got some new robotic systems that we've actually invented a new system for uh, complete robotics for pellet processing. And it's uh, it's crazy awesome. I'm most excited about that. Probably within the next year, we just finished the final uh, uh, dibs on it working. Now we've now he's got to go build the thing. So we did that. We've got our new facility, like you said, opening up uh, here in Edmond. And um, and then we have a new warehouse distribution center we opened because we just need a big warehouse to house all this stuff. So um, so now we're we basically got a lab in one facility that does R&D and testing. Then we have a major uh, manufacturing facility in the new facility and then a warehouse that warehouses all the drugs. We're also going to be doing patient-specific GMP 503B drugs, which is extremely rare. Most of your patient-specific drugs are all just single compounds, whereas, and not using the GMP methods we use. These will be drugs available using GMP. Um, we've also launched into a testosterone cypionate, which is kind of the other side of the pellet. Um, you've got your, it's an injectable, same thing, uh, injection of testosterone. Um, mm-hmm. There's different people have different theories and beliefs and all that, but, uh, you know, we're a drug company. We're here to serve everyone. So we make them both. And then, uh, there's that. And then we also are making, we have a BLT cream, which is a benzocaine, lidocaine, tetracaine. That actually came to us. A lot of hospitals and clinics that are out of this stuff right now. We know the supply chain's crazy with different issues. And we got called to do that as well as a wet cream. A lot of the hospitals are out of it. That's a, lidocaine, uh, epinephrine, and tetracaine cream. It's actually going to be sterile. We just started R&D on that. We've got a, we got some creams, a progesterone cream, a lot of ointments, uh, progesterone cream, testosterone, and a biased cream coming out. And then there's a bunch of this stuff. And um, on another front, which is a big thing to me, is I'm working with a new thing that's to try to help uh, uh, veterans. And that is we've got a naltrexone pellet made for addiction and NAD to help with the mind cells and, and, and restructuring the brain cells that come back, as well as uh, ketamine for using in these clinics for depression. And, of course, the number one pellet therapy is probably one of the top things to really help these veterans. And we're trying to put a system together nationally to really bind this together to really fight PTSD and a little TBI in there, too, I think we can help with, and depression and addiction because they tend to be something that goes together in the veteran world. And this is something really serious to me, and um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mission and a calling a little bit that I feel like this is a tie that i got to give back. This is something we got to make happen because I really – and here we go with compounds – what the VA has done with drugs and the, and the general population has not worked. I think that's that's agreeable. And I think we have the ability and I think we have the system here to fight this and make a difference in these in these men and women's lives. 
And that that gets me out of bed in the morning early. That as we say down here in Oklahoma. So that's a you know, that that's something I'm really after and I'm really excited about. No, it sounds great. So when you're deciding to do all of this um, from, you know, manufacturing, you know, a pellet at this point in time, are these your ideas or is your team coming to you with these or is it just the people that you're associating with or potentially, you know, um, I guess treating in an indirect way, you know, that come to you with these ideas? Like, how do you, how do you decide to do this? Well, other than divinity... <laughs> I am not that smart. <laughs> I'd like to tell you I am, but I'm not. I mean, I'm a pretty bright guy, but no, this is people around me. I'm I am so blessed, Jim, to have friends, my staff, uh, people in your organization, um, people all around that have had these ideas. There's no doubt. And I'm just a, I like to put them to paper. Like I said early on, I like to build stuff. And I'm kind of that guy that can do that. And and I like, I, I love the excitement of being able to do something like that. But, uh, you know, I have my own ideas blend in with them, of course, but I'd have to say, you know, when I started the pellet business, there's a guy named Dr. Gino Tatera. I'll come back to him. And he he's kind of a godfather of pellets way back in the day. And I was actually having a drink with him. It's how I got into this business. And I asked him what the biggest problem was. You know, I said, what, what's your biggest problem with hormone therapy? And then the problem is there is no pellet nationally that is consistent. I train these people and they go out in the hinterlands and they go to these small mom and pop places to get pellets. And, you know, they're all made differently and nothing wrong with them. I just, there's no way I'm going to get a consistent result when they're all not the same. And so he was just mad, crazy about wanting to make hormone therapy perfect. I mean, he was just medieval about this and, and he wanted beyond anything else, you know, the money all is great, but you could just see it in his eyes when he talked about this, that, that he wanted most of all that the whole world could be on hormone therapy. And, and the more we know about what it does, and if we have a consistent pellet and such, the better job we could do at treating people and collecting that data, of course, and doing things. So he said, Hey, why don't you make a pellet? And I hit the, well, you're, you're, are you crazy? <laughs> I've never done that. And, uh, and I, I don't know, maybe it was a bet, a challenge. I don't know how that went down after that, but, uh, he talked me in, I don't know. He talked me into it. Somehow I think I lost all my money that night, my car keys and everything. And I, was in the, <laughs> I ended up in the parking lot making pellets because Gino was a great talker too. He's just a great guy. And uh, the rest is history. And we've been making them since. Well, I'll tell you when we started using your pellets, which was a few years ago, um, I think it revolutionized our business because before that, you know, the, some of the other pellets from the other competitors were relatively inconsistent, not necessarily from an efficacy standpoint, but just from a, a placement standpoint. And, um, you know, our patients tend to have a little bit more of a, an adverse event, you know, post-placement. And with the Qualigen pellet, with your, your technology being different, um, our, our site uh, inflammation, so to speak, um, you know, has been reduced significantly. And I'm a, a perfect... Uh, test case for that, I guess. And um, so when you started getting into it, then did you, you know, did, did you look at the competitor's designs and decide to do something a little bit differently with that? Or did you just, you know, through just your own collaborations, decide to do something that um, you felt would work better than what's out there? Um, you know, and, and by the way, when we first did this, I only really knew about really, there was only one or two other big 503As doing a lot of volume and I won't name the names. And in fact, one of them is a pretty good friend of ours. I consider these days we're pretty close. We still compete, but 
they've got a quality product. Nothing wrong with that company. But uh, that was about it. And so not really. We Gino came to me and said, look, the other problem with a lot of the pellets time, they had povidone in them and this kind of thing like Testapel's pellet and all this. And he goes, I don't want all that. I want a completely bioidentical pellet so that just like this GMO kick everybody's on today or stuff, you know, you don't, I don't want any of that in people's bodies. I want something that's completely natural. And what's funny is he wanted it to be with steric acid as opposed to cholesterol, which I was, we wanted to do cholesterol because it's a lot easier to work with and make it bind. And, and we'd actually made a cholesterol pellet. And I remember we came to him with it. He says, no, 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 I want it with steric acid. And I'm like, well, why? He goes, well, because nobody else does that. And, and I can, I only want it to be less than 1%. And I'm like, how's that going to work? And so, I'm not kidding. It, our our development of that pellet went from like three weeks to six months. We we couldn't make it work. I would it in to this day. There's the honest truth, and I can't tell you the secret sauce because, like that Bush's beans dog, you'd have to come after you and bite you. <laughs> but uh, it's a secret. But honestly, we made a mistake in the lab, and that's how it worked. That's the honest truth. It's almost like the Graham Bell thing. You know, you spilt the acid type thing. So that's right. I, I, that's literally what happened and the grace of God and praise to him that it's all his glory that we got that done. And there's no doubt about it in my mind, because I was almost to the point of giving up. I was like, I, we can't do this. You know, it don't work. And, uh, he just, he kept believing us. It was funny. I'll keep trying, keep trying. You can do it. You know, you guys can do it. And I was at the wits end and I'll be dang it. It, it popped out, worked. And, and then the rest is history, as they say. So, Really, we just took a whole new course based on what he wanted to do. It had nothing to do with what anybody else had done or what they were doing or anything like that at all. It was just like, this is what I want, and that's it. And so, okay, so that's how we got there. Uh, I mean, that's a great story. The get back to the FDA one more time, not to keep bringing them up, but obviously you're in a highly regulated industry. How often are you audited? How often does the FDA come knocking on your door? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> it's a, it has a lot of resolve to it. Um, and then what happens with those audits is another question. Um, they're supposed to, they're based on a risk assessment type thing. So they're to come out at least once a year or more, depending on risk. And we've kind of generally stayed in a two-year mark, although I'll tell you, we've had our run-ins with them. I'll be honest about that. And it's been difficult, especially at first. And mainly just because we were a, uh, uh, we were, we were a young 503B, you know, didn't really understand the, the CFR as much as I thought we did. And that's just the honest truth. You know, seven years later, uh, yeah, a whole different degree of answer on that today. Plus, I th- this is interesting. I think we had one or two people in our quality department back then. Now our quality department is almost 30% of our staff. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you something. And the cost of that and everything else went through the roof. So, not to mention the level of knowledge because we've got people in here that have got 30, 35 years, big pharma quality experience in here too. So um, I, they're way over my head and, and they're all, they're all scientists and, and have been doing this a long time. And, but that, that's basically the FDA side of that. Um, I can say a lot there. I'm just going to try to be polite about it. And uh, I'm just going to bow off from that standpoint and say that, you know, we work hard at that. Qualgen cares a ton about our quality as we started this meeting and, and we get criticized with some things I'm just kind of shaking my head on because I know what's right and what's wrong and, and what somebody else says. And the problem with some of this guidance that they have, and that's what they call it, is very, that's that, it's guidance. 
which guidance is interpretable. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the real significant thing that's tough with this with for all of us, including the FDA, because you know, they got an idea, we got one, we don't agree. You know, of course they're the FDA, they win. But it's it's difficult, you know, it's a very, very difficult business. And we've lost some 503Bs to that, some good ones. Um, I can name a couple that I know the guys personally. They were great businessmen and good businesses. I really don't believe that the product was as bad as what we may have said, what happened, but be that as it may, you know, it is where it is today. Well, I think too, you know, just from our experience, um, you know, we weren't a big CRO by any stretch of the imagination and we're working with smaller biotech and pharmaceutical and in our industry, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and there's some big players, you know, and they're almost, you know, some of them are, you know, bigger than a lot of the big pharmas, you know, that are out there right now. And it seems like at the time, based on the bureaucracy and just based on human nature, what you know, um, you tend to leave alone. And then what you don't know, even though they could be doing a great job, you tend to pay a lot of attention to. And in some cases you can, you respect that because you don't want, you know, a startup or a small company doing, you know, things that are against, um, you know, the good clinical practices in, in our case. And, um, but at some point in time, you know, once you've proven yourself, then, you know, hopefully you get left alone. So I understand where you're coming from on that. And, um, but it sounds like you're, you've been able to navigate those waters and, uh, you know, you're, you're moving your business forward and, and, uh, you got a lot of great things happening at this point in time. Yes. And then it, you're, and of course, as a businessman, any businessman, you're always looking for that one tree in the middle of the lake that you're about to hit, <laughs> but you don't know where it is. <laughs> yeah. They come out of nowhere sometimes too. Yeah. When you talk about navigating waters, that's the first thing that comes to mind to me. So, uh, no, we keep very diligent and, uh, you know, we're, we're a fighter and we believe in what we're doing. And I believe in this business huge. I think, it, I think compounding is one of the greatest things in the United States because, you know, that's a big thing. It's been here for a long time and it's a, it's a practice as much as an art and it, and it's, a, and I said it again, it's a huge weapon for the providers and it needs to stay around forever. It, it's, it's so important to our medicine. Now, I agree. And I think also, you know, you being a manufacturer in the U.S. as opposed to, you know, a manufacturer in a different part of the world. Um, and obviously, politically, you know, we've been talking about loss of manufacturing jobs for years and years and years. Um, do you feel like you're rewarded in a way by the government or appreciated because you're, you're doing work in the States or does that not really matter? Well, that's a tough question. You you put me on the spot, Jim. That, that, <laughs> Can it be a political yeah, that answer? That wasn't again, very right? nice. You got to be very careful. <laughs> Number one, let me say this, and I want to get this on record because anybody who's ever heard me speak before knows what I'm going to probably tell you right off the bat. Number one, this business is a business that I was called to do. It wasn't something I had to do, and I believe in it 100%. And I love it, by the way. I love I love drugs. I love the manufacturing. I love watching it help people, especially hormone therapy. I've seen this fix marriages. Um, the sex lives of people come back together and they, you know, move in together. And, and when you fix marriages, you fix families. And it, it's just phenomenal what it's done. I've seen it. I've, I've personally watched it happen more than once, uh, now dozens of times. And number two, the company is a tithe back to God that we can hire and, and build as many employees in here as we can. Because I believe in the sow of the seed type thing. You know, if you give, if you, if you teach somebody how to farm is a lot better than just giving them the food. So jobs 
create knowledge, create skills, create everything. And so everybody who works here has children, kids, aunts, uncles, and it goes beyond our 40 some employees. It goes, the, the company gives back to, you know, feeding a community to people that are going to school, to the kids that are, that are getting to eat, you know, everything. It's just, it's, it's just, I, I almost weep at times. I go home and think about everything it's doing for those families, you know, beyond anything else that means a lot to me. So what the government thinks, if I don't really care, I'm, I'm more into that. I, that I care about my employees and the people that work here and we need to continue to grow so we can hire more people and grow more people. And especially here in Oklahoma to help the biotech industry grow and, and make better medicines for people and lower the drug cost, if you will, because compounds can, and and just continue to make that thrive. And so it's critical. As in, like I said, if the government's happy with me, then great. But uh, I would have to say, on only note I would say about that is, uh, I haven't seen them helping. There, no, I've seen them in my building doing anything for me lately. Right. Well, I will say that you know, yeah, from our practice perspective too. Um, you know, your product has, you know, helped a lot of lives, you know, you, to your point, putting families together, back together. And, you know, for, in addition to that, you know, we got people that are, you know, being told to power through, you know, whatever's going on in their, in their lives from their traditional doctors. And they come here and, you know, Dr. Greg is able to balance, you know, their hormones, balance their physiology. And then from there, you know, they just, they, they tend to bloom from a health perspective. And, um, so it's, it's, I think we're on a mission to your point, and um, um, I'm hoping that we both can continue to be extremely successful in what we do and how, how your product touches, you know, the patients that we deliver services to. Um, as we finish up, uh, we always ask for five takeaways from our guest. So I'm going to throw it back to you and, you know, have you uh, partake some wisdom on our audience. Well, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> Well, you kind of heard what I'm about, and uh, and I think you get that pretty fast. That you know, God's first, family's right there, and and if we're able to combine the two with business and what we're doing in here with what that's how I believe we're doing, that's the ultimate, and um, that's that's what matters. You know, that's that's the grip of it. And I think as far as success, you know, like you said, I hope we are, but you know, we're successful, Jim. We've already saved the lives of umpteen hundreds or thousands of people regardless of what anybody else ever does. And that's a fact. And I've seen it too. I'm with you. I mean, you know, Optimal Bio is one of our clients. We got hundreds across the nation around the world. And and uh, I have seen this story so many times, like what you just said, it's not even funny. And so I go to bed every night knowing that what I'm doing is it's getting that done for sure. And that is ultimate. And the more we can do things to produce that, and especially if it comes back to, changing people's lives and saving families. I'm all in. I'm, I'm all in and always will be. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're a man that's driven with purpose. And I think, you know, anybody that I know that has purpose ends up being successful. And, um, but you've been an inspiration to talk to today. We loved your story and um, God bless you and your family. And, you know, I'm glad we're working together. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you, Jim. Thank, thanks a ton. And God bless you guys. And, Tell Greg that he's the best TikTok dancer I've ever seen. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that guy's awesome. I love him. I love you guys and appreciate everything you guys are doing. 
Sounds great. I will let him know, and I'll tell you the story behind that someday. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care, Sean. Thanks. This has been a production of Optimal Bio. Optimal Bio is CEO Tyler Brannon, podcast host and partner Jim Baker, medical director Greg Brannon, production assistance by Core Media, Beth Grabencourt, administrator, Kevin Duthu, executive producer. The podcast can be found on our website, optimalbio.com, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our theme song is Sunwave by Paradiso, provided by Epidemic Sound. Thank you.